Today, I begin a verse-by-verse expository study of 1 Corinthians. I begin today. The conclusion is yet to be determined. In fact, to tell you the truth, the conclusion of this message today is yet to be determined. We will be going through this book verse by verse, almost word by word, almost. And I want to explain to you the basis on which I do this, why I am doing it this way. There are some predetermined convictions on my part, based upon my own personal study of this book, that we call the Bible. Because I am more and more convinced as we go along that very few of us really believe this is the Word of God. We just look at it as a novel. Not the Word of God. With the attitude we should have. So let me give you a few of these convictions. So you will know exactly why I handle the Word of God the way I do and the attitude that shapes my approach in presenting and proclaiming the Word of God. First, I believe that this Bible, while penned by man, has its source and origin in the triune God, thereby making it to be the Word of God and not the Word of man. And that this Bible is all we need to enable us to establish a right relationship with God. And the most important thing in this world for us is to establish a right relationship with God. Everything else is secondary. I believe also that the Word of God itself has a spiritually life-giving power that transcends both time and culture and is therefore absolutely relevant to our life at all times. In other words, this word is as good and powerful and authoritative now as it was when it was first written. There's no change. And no matter where we go, China, Haiti, Africa, the Bahamas, wherever we go, this word is the same. It is the word of an ever-changing God. The prophet Isaiah speaks to this truth of the power of the word and God's purpose for the word in Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 11. And this is what that passage says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Please remember that. We like to argue with God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's amazing to me why so many people think that they are more compassionate than God when they see these disasters happen. How could a good God? He must be cruel. What are you saying? You are more compassionate and loving than God. 
My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth. In other words, the purpose for it to come down on the earth is to water the earth. After it accomplishes that purpose, making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, it goes back up. That's the purpose of it. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. Now notice, it says, my word. It doesn't say what the preacher says about his word. It says, my word. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. Did you get that? No ifs, buts, maybe here. It will not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Every time the word of God is read, God has a purpose for it. And that purpose will be established whether we see it ourselves or not. Thirdly, because of this conviction, I believe that we can read or speak forth any portion of the word of God and at any time, and it will be and is relevant to our life situation. In other words, I could pick this Bible up, open it anywhere and read it, and God will use that word to speak to someone who hears it. I don't have to say, well... I'm going to this church now. Let me see what they believe. Let me see what they think. I want to speak something relevant. No, 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 no. The word of God is always relevant when it is the word of God. The only time that it is not is when I am claiming to preach the word of God, but giving my own ideas. The word of God is alive and relevant at all times. Fourthly, I believe that God has promised to bless his word. Not what I say about his word. And therefore I am committed to proclaiming it accurately and without fear of what man may do to me. Did you get that? Because many times we as preachers afraid to preach some things. Because somebody out there that we like might be hurt. Or somebody you give to the church a lot of money and if we say something might hurt him or her. You won't give anymore. Or somebody out there doing something, if we say they ain't going to do it anymore. Well, listen. If you take that position because I am giving you my ideas, you should. But if you're taking that position because the word of God says it, your problem is with God, not with me. Do you understand that? That's my position concerning the word of God. I say that because as we go through the scriptures word by word, somebody says, man, that's a long book. When you can finish it. Well, it's the word of God. And we're going to go through it. Verse by verse. Oh, well, now, Having said all of that, let's give some background to this amazingly 
timely, relevant, and intriguing books we call the First Corinthians. This background will help us to understand a little bit better the problems that Paul is describing in this book and the corrections for it. Corinth, the city of Corinth, where this church was located, was a Grecian city. It was about 48 miles west of Athens, just across the water from it. It's like going from here to Spanish Wells. That's how far it was from Athens. And remember that Athens was a major city as well. And so they impacted each other as far as its culture was concerned, the Greek culture. The ancient city, the first city, was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C. Uh, the city that we have described in the New Testament was one that was rebuilt after this first destruction. In fact, it became the Roman seat of government for southern Greece, according to Acts chapter 18. We'll look at that as we go along. At Corinth was known for its wealth. It was an extremely wealthy city. Luxurious as far as this building and accommodations were concerned but also known for its gross immorality and the vicious and terrible habits of the people. In fact, so, they were so immoral and so difficult, we couldn't describe it here in the church. It had a large mixed population of Romans, Greeks, and Jewish people. Paul founded the church at Corinth on a second missionary journey when he first stopped at the city. Acts 18 describes this for us. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him for Macedonia, if you remember. And that's when he had his first contact in proclaiming the gospel. It was at this place that he was introduced to Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers. He was also a tent maker by trade. And so he lived with Aquila and Priscilla for some 18 months while he carried on his preaching ministry. Now, when Paul first visited the city, he stayed them with these, this couple for that period of time. And right after he left, another great preacher came, Apollos. And of course, it's Aquila and Priscilla, if you remember, who got Apollos straight on the teaching about Jesus Christ. He was a great preacher, but he was not preaching the truth according to the word. These, this couple got him straight. Corinth was generally known as a wicked city, as I said. In fact, it became such a wicked place that the term to Corinthianize mean to degrade a person. If you were called a Corinthian, you were, you were regarded to be a prostitute, and in particularly a religious prostitute. Because they had some of the major go Greek gods that were worshipped there. Aphrodite, Aphrodite, for instance, was worshipped there. They had a worship that involved male and female prostitutes. They used to go to the temple to commit these acts as acts of worship. You will see Paul alluding to some of these things as we go through it. But it was a wicked city. If we were to look at it today, we probably would say it was Las Vegas, New York, Amsterdam, and Nassau all joined together. 
It was an immoral, wicked, degrading city. And most of the wickedness was done in the name of religion. The worship of the Greek gods and goddesses. Paul made a third missionary trip. And according to Acts chapter 20, he made a second visit to Corinth. And he remained for another or an additional three months. That's when he wrote the book of Romans. Now, he wrote the book that we're studying from Ephesus. And when he wrote the book of Romans, we read Romans 1. He describes these wicked and immoral behavior. of People who had rejected God and made their own, uh, Im- made their own gods in all kinds of images. He was doing that, I believe, based on what he had seen and experienced in the book of Corinth, you see. And therefore, this third time, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, because there's there's some who believe that he paid a third visit as well. We'll talk about that later on. But 2 Corinthians says this, Herefore, this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Many take from this that Paul visited a third time and that he wrote another letter. We don't have that letter and we're not sure that he visited a third time. But he did spend a lot of time there. I'm saying this because when we go through the book, you have some idea of why he's saying what he did. Now, while Paul was in Ephesus on this third missionary journey, he received news from a lady who was called Chloe, from Chloe's household. Now, the term for household here meant not only children, but slaves as well, because they all lived together, and the slaves were regarded as a household. So they heard news from Chloe's household, probably meaning from slaves, freed slaves, that things were not going too well in the church in Corinth. Also, a letter had been sent to Paul from the Corinthian church outlining a number of problems which they wanted Paul to address. And so, Paul, with all of these things in mind, this news he's got from these folk from close household, the letter that he'd received from Corinth themselves, talking about all of these problems, Paul writes this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. He took pen in hand and began to address the many problems in the church. Yes, New Testament church had problems. That's why you have to be careful to say that we want a New Testament church. Because I got to ask you which one. Because when you go in and looking at the church, all of them had even Ephesus. Only after, now Corinth was quite a church, as you will see. Among these problems were immorality. That's because of the environment in which they live, probably. Not only that, but that also. Disunity. Abuse of the Lord's Supper. Problems with baptism. Disorderly conduct in the worship surf, service. Everybody talking at the same time. Everybody doing what they want to do. And many other theological problems. And we're going to be looking at all of them. Paul had expected maturity 
by this time, because it's like five years now, four or five years. But instead, instead he found these Corinthians, this, these Corinthians, Corinthian Christians to be immature. They were babes. They were carnal. And that was what broke Paul's heart as he wrote. All right, let's go to the text itself. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. It begins with what we call the salutation, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosisthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's inspired writing. If you just know what's packed in there, it'll blow your mind. Let's take a closer look at these verses. Now on the screen, you'll see the, the verses written in a different way than you have it in the Bible. Because this is the way I break the passage down when I study it to help me to understand what it is saying. I don't have time to explain it in detail. If you want to know how we do it, come to Teleos or Discovery and we'll show you how to study the Bible. All right? Notice now, Paul begins by introducing himself and his associate. Now remember, Paul was first called Saul. That was his first name. He was a prominent card-carrying Pharisee. In fact, he said he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was on the top level as far as these religious elite people could go. He was committed to upholding the law and Judaism at all costs because he believed that the Old Testament, the law, the Torah, uh, was God's word to his people, the Jews. And he was committed to upholding it. He would be called today a leading advocate for maintaining the religious status quo or traditional culture of the church. In other words, if it is anybody who could be called by a Jewish person, one who was defending the faith, it would be Paul. And he poured, it was Saul, and he poured his life into that. He was an accomplice of those who performed the killing of the first martyr of the church, Stephen, Stephen described for us in Acts chapter 8. In fact, it says this in verse 3. Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women and he would put them in prison. In other words, he was so intense of being sure that the Jewish religion was not harmed or in any way that he took it upon himself to do away with this new Jewish sect that was causing people to have a different idea about who the Messiah was. And he went throughout the city. He seemed to have done a good job, perhaps even killing some of the Christians. But then he pushed 
authorities to acquire the legal documents to extend, to extend his persecution of the church outside of Jerusalem. On his way to Damascus to do his dirty work, however, by the way, he thought he was doing it for the glory of God. He met the head of the church. He was persecuting the body, but he met the head, head on. The rest is history. You remember what he said? Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou? I am the one you are persecuting. Jesus identified himself with the church, and Paul realized that. His next words were, Lord, what would you have me to do? What a beautiful model for all those who meet Jesus Christ for the first time. Lord, what would you have me to do? In fact, let me ask you that question right now. If you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian for five years, 10 years, 15 years, what are you doing for God? Are you doing anything at all for God that makes a difference? Are you witnessing, as we say, for him? What have you done for Jesus Christ since you met him? Jesus, the head of the church, appointed him as an apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, his authority came directly from the risen head of the church, Jesus Christ. That's why he states here, Paul, called by the will of God. That's the main statement. Called what? Called to be an apostle. A sent one. We are talking here about a true, true apostle. Not these apostles we hear about today. We're talking about someone who was appointed by the head of the church. And especially an, an individually, specifically commissioned to be his witness. Paul called himself an apostle born out of time. Why? Because he was the only one who was appointed by the resurrected Christ himself. No one else was. That's why his ministry is so unique. That's why you'll read as you go to the book of Corinthians, he's talking about by the revelation, or it was done to me or said to me. All of this was special revelation. Jesus Christ speaking directly to Paul to teach him the truth of the church. So he's emphasizing here, called by the will of God. He was certain of his calling as a servant of Jesus Christ. And he was faithful to that calling. What about you? Are you faithful to the calling that he has put upon your life? Have you started off well, but now you're dragging way behind because things got a little tough. You had no air conditioning in the church. You couldn't stay home to see a game. You couldn't do... Are you falling behind even though you know Jesus Christ has called you? One of the most blessed experiences any Christian could have is to know that he is in the call in the place where God has called him. Now, I don't mean just what we call the ministry here. I'm talking whether it's a wife, a husband. I'm, I don't, I'm talking about where God has placed you. You should be faithful to your calling. It emphasizes his apostolic authority. Why did he have to do that? 
Because as you read through this book in Corinthians, you're going to find that people did, some people didn't like Paul. They didn't like his preaching. You're going to see that as we go on. They didn't believe that he was a true apostle. They believe he's only in the ministry for the money. You can hear all that in here. You see, when Paul talks about the pressures of the church pressuring him, that's what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about what he was doing. He was talking about what the Corinthians was doing to him. But he had to begin with saying that I am a true sent one of Jesus Christ. I am an apostle. Now he includes Sosthenes, a believing a believer living in Corinth. We'll come across him and see how he became involved with Paul in a fight they had because Paul was taking all the business away from the people who were making statues and ornaments and everything else for the uh, for the uh, the same thing that happened in Ephesus was happening here. You will find that a battle coming up. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Now some believe that Sosthenes might be the one who had written the 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 the, the, the uh, the latter itself, because it appears that Paul could not have, Paul had a problem with his eyes. He couldn't see. You could see that as we go along. And most of the times you'll find there was other people who wrote the letter. Paul just dictated the letter. And some believe that Sosthenes might have done this. Acts 18.7 talks about this run-in with the merchants of the city. It says they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. He was the leader of the synagogue and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. It looks like this person became a leader of the Jews in Corinth, became a believer in Jesus Christ, showing again the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul next identifies the addressees or recipients of the letter. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in every place, their Lord and ours. Boy, what a beautiful passage. Now the word church, of course, literally means an assembly, a gathering or a congregation. More precisely, it means a called out or a called together people. When it's applied to the church, when it's applied to the people of God, it refers to a people who've been called out by the Spirit of God to worship Jesus Christ. Called out to come together to worship Christ. It has the same idea of God taking the people of Israel out of Egypt. Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? So they may worship me. That's the church in that form. God calls the church out of the world. Why? So that they might worship him. That's the reason for our being a part of the church. To worship the triune God. So with regards to the believers in Christ, the church refers to people called out of the world to worship Jesus Christ. The text indicates that there's both a universal church as well as a local expression of the church. Notice... It is the church of God at Corinth. The implication is that the church of God someplace else. So we have the idea of a universal and a local church. The church at Corinth was an expression of the universal church. The church of God is one church with no one specific location. But the church at Corinth was a part of that church. It has a literal, physical location. Calvary Bible Church... Is the church of God here on Collins Avenue. 
It is further described that those who are being sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to read the tense in here. It's a perfect tense, indicating a position of, of holiness accomplished by God, and it continues in force. In other words, God sanctified those who are members of the church. He sanctified the church, and that work of sanctification continues to go on. Therefore, it is a state. It is a condition. Everybody who has been called into the church by Jesus Christ has been sanctified by the triune God. Paul is describing then a permanent state of position. Believers in Christ who make up the church have been set apart in Christ in the past. And that state continues today. He is set us apart for his use. He set us apart to be used for his glory. And the primary part of that is to worship the living God, the triune God. Tremendous passage here. He says, in Christ. Church of God in Christ. This speaks of the believer's spiritual location in Christ. So we have the idea of being united with Christ. Our physical location is here on Collins Avenue as a church. Our spiritual location is in Christ. In Christ. That means that we are united with the head of the church. So physically, these believers are located in Corinth. Spiritually, they are located in Christ. As Paul tells us, in the heavenlies. And we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in Christ. That's where we are. Now some of us don't live like it. We don't live like we're in Christ. We live like we're still in the world and still in the evil one. But if you're a true believer, you're in Christ. Connected ahead. Not only that, he says we are saints by calling. Notice that. We are saints by calling. Paul says, I'm an apostle by calling. He says, now I want you to understand, you are a saint by calling. An apostle by calling has a specific ministry. A saint by calling has a special blessing. The idea of sanctification is set apartedness. Holiness has been emphasized. Saints mean holy ones. Now let me ask you something, all of you. Suppose you go into your workplace tomorrow or to your school or go to your children and says, I am a holy one. Would they laugh at you? But every person who names the name of Christ is a holy one in the sight of God. Being set apart for the purpose of displaying the glory of God. So that's both our position and our calling. God has set us apart for his use. Calling. Saints. That's how we are to live as holy ones. He says further, who call upon them with all who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This describes the condition of being set apart by God for his special use and possession. One has to call upon his name. Meaning in context, in order for us to be in Christ, in order for us to be sanctified, in order for us to be saints by calling, we must first call upon Jesus Christ for salvation. None of us can feel safe 
spiritually speaking, until we have called out to Jesus Christ for salvation. Have you done it? To call on the name. Notice the text. To call on the name. The name refers to all that Jesus is and has done. It speaks of his power. It speaks of his authority. It speaks of his influence. That's why when we pray in the name of Christ, it isn't simply we put a little signature there. No, 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 no. It's on the basis of all who he is. He has authority. That all he has done. He's died. He's been raised. He's glorified. That's what it means when we say in the name of Jesus Christ. But yet some of us use that name callously and carelessly. This name, the name of Jesus, is a precious name. It's a powerful name. It's a holy name. It's the name of our Savior. It's the name of our God. It's a name that should be honored and glorified. And whenever we name the name of Christ, we should be sure we do nothing to make him ashamed of us or his name. He says, believers in Christ, those who call on his name exist everywhere. He says, notice, every place. And we share a common submission to his lordship. Our Lord and theirs. But then he goes on, verse 3. Now we have the content of the salutation or the blessing. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What beautiful words. Someone has said, you never see these two concepts in reverse order. In other words, grace always precedes peace. You cannot experience peace with God or peace of God until you have experienced the grace of God in your life. Until you have applied the work of Christ to your life, his substitutionary work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, God's right hand, until you have applied the work of Jesus Christ to your life, you'll never have peace. You wouldn't have peace with God, nor will you have peace of God. It has to do with a relationship. Grace and peace to you. Notice, these blessings of grace and blessing come from both the Father and the Son. This tells us that the Son is equal with the Father. They are one. God, the Father, God, the Son. They work together to accomplish our salvation. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the thanksgiving he gives for these people. He says, I thank my God for the grace of God. That's how the text reads when you look at the main statement. Everything else describes what's in there. I thank my God. How, how many times? Always. I thank my God for the grace of God for what? Concerning you. He's talking about the Corinthians. I want you to see this now, because he's going to call these people some bad names later on. But now he's thanking God for you, for the grace of God was given to you in Christ Jesus. See, that's where the grace of God is found, in Jesus Christ. 
Not in your works. Not in your human efforts, what you could do. Not in your philosophy. But in Jesus Christ. Notice now. Paul thanks God for God's grace that has blessed the Corinthian church with outstanding spiritual gifts in the area of speech and knowledge. Notice what he says. That you were enriched, which were in everything. Where? In him. What things? In all speech. In all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. This is an amazing scripture. Paul thanks God for God's grace that had blessed the Corinthians church with outstanding spiritual gifts in the area of speech and knowledge. The very gifts that later on he's going to complain and criticize to them about because they're going to be abusing the grace of God in the church by the way they live. Can you abuse the grace of God? You bet your life you can. How are you treating the one who died for you and was raised again for you? If you do not glorify him in your life and you say you're a Christian, you're abusing the grace of God. They receive these gifts upon their faith in Christ concerning when, when Christ says, even as a testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, these gifts were given to the believers when they received Jesus Christ as personal Savior. It was by the grace of God they were saved. It was by the grace of God these gifts were given to them. But they were abusing both. They're abusing the grace of God. And Paul will develop these gifts in chapters 12 through 14. But he confirms their extraordinary giftedness in this next verse. Know what he says, verse 14. So that you are not lacking in any gift. Now one of the things we like to emphasize today is the gifts. We like to go around, what gifts do you have? What's your gift? What's your gift? This church have this gift? Well, the church of Corinth, they had every gift possible. And we're going to see. But even though they had every spiritual gift, they were the most terrible, miserable, fleshly church we have in the scriptures. Even though I have all the gifts. But notice now he says, you've got all of them. And you are awaiting the revelation. Not only are you just waiting, eagerly waiting. The revelation, the manifestation. The exposition, that's what the word means. Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. And they were waiting for the return of Jesus Christ eagerly. And he says, they will confer, he will confirm you in, to the end in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now revelation here, as I say, means appearance or unveiling of the glory of Christ upon his return. Not the second time, but at his rapture. And the rapture and the second coming of Christ is not the same. How do we know that this is the rapture? Look at the phrase, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you see that phrase in scripture, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in scripture, or the day of Christ, you know he's talking about the rapture. When it comes to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation, it's called the day of the Lord. For it's the judgment more than blessing. The Greek word, as I says, has to do with the personal appearance or revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, these Corinthians with all of these gifts were looking forward to the rapture. 
We're probably saying to one another, Maranatha! The Lord is coming. But Paul assures them of God's faithfulness to keep them until that time. Paul was a good, what we call today, psychologist. He was giving them a blessing, a positive input before he comes down with the heavy stuff. In other words, he's saying, later on he did. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing here. Notice, they were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. They weren't called into an organization with a set of rules. They were called into a relationship. And that is what salvation is. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with a living person. Called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Called to be saints. Why? Because we are in fellowship with the Holy God. Salvation is a relationship based on holiness. Not a set of rules. But holiness. 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 No matter what you do for Christ. If you are not holy in your lifestyle, it doesn't do any good. It's what you are. It's who you are. Not what you do. That it counts in his relationship. Paul then turns to deal with the first problem in the church. And believe it or not, I had planned to finish this entire book today. I mean, this entire chapter today. But we're going to stop here. With this, with this thought. Are you in fellowship with Jesus Christ today? First, have you received God's grace of salvation? Placing faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, you calling upon the grace of God to enable you to live a holy life. So that your relationship with him could be in place at all times. That's what you are called as saints to be. Let's live out in our life what we are by calling. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for accomplishing your purpose for which it has been sent forth today. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen.